Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Alright, I'm gonna take a sip of coffee. Go in, take one. Welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography, where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And on this episode, we're talking to John Hilty, because we were wrong about autochromes. Watch out for snakes. There's also some history about the Viewmaster, and we take a look at two books of early crime scene photos. Also, there's Tiffin, zine reviews, and some other fun along the way. But, of course, first, let's check in with Eric and see how the hell he's been. Well, the past week has seen kind of two things happen to me. First is something that happens pretty regularly, and that's I I released a new zine. It's the fifth issue of of In This Land. Nice. I I think you got a copy of that. I think I sent that to you. Did I I send you a copy? You did not. I did not. Are you sure? I'm hoping I get it soon. Oh, shit. I thought I sent I totally sent you a copy. I promise. Did you? (laughs) Yeah, why wouldn't I have sent you a copy? That seems uh, ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. I didn't pay for it, so it's understandable. Fair enough. But the other thing that happened, it, it well, it was weird. I do day trips into Eastern Washington all through the spring and sometimes in the summer and all through the early part of the fall. But after the time changes, I generally stop traveling. Mm-hmm. Last year I did that. It's when I did all this, the, the shooting in Seattle. This year, I decided that I want to travel to Eastern Washington in the winter. It's bitterly cold there in the winter. Mm -hmm. You'll have highs of like 15 degrees, 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Pleasant. It's it's and it can be very windy and it can be very unpleasant. Sounds like a wonderful place to go. But it's a place that it's it's interesting seeing places that you know very well in at times of the year when you don't normally see them. Mm, True. So I went out there and it was sunny. It was supposed to be sunny. And it was sunny. Like the whole the whole trip there after the sun came up, because I leave really fucking early. I left at four in the morning. And when you I got out there and it was it was sunny. Uh, but as the closer I got the closer I got to the Columbia River, I could see that there was a long band of fog just lying in the river. You know, the kind of a, the, the fog mirrors the river. Mm-hmm. And it was really still, and it's very rarely still on the Columbia. And so when I drove down there, I looked to the to the water, and there were little, little, they looked almost like tiny water spouts of mm. water, like water vapor being sucked up into the fog. Oh, cool. It was bizarre. And so I drove along this little road going south, and... I was just kind of taken in by the river. And you know me and water. I'm always around water. I love water. He's such I, a liar. I, I shoot water all the time. You're such a liar. <laughs> but this time it was, you know, I don't, I don't actually, but I loved how the land was interacting with the water. And I loved how like the, the water vapor was interacting with like the river and everything was just worked out so perfectly. And so I was like, well, I can spend a few, I'm an hour or so here because I knew that I was just going to get just just no clouds, just sun the whole time, the whole day. And a lot of people like that, but that's not how I want to photograph. And so 
I enjoyed my time around the river and I, I really, you know, took some, some trees and all of that. And then I begrudgingly went, okay, fine. I drug myself out of it. But the whole time for the rest of the day, that fog kind of, it turned into like a marine layer of clouds, like a thick, thick, heavy clouds that were not necessarily on the ground. They were kind of up in the air a little bit, like clouds normally are. And the whole day was just thick, foggy clouds with texture. So I got like these really interesting photos, which is the whole point of going out. So not sun. Not sun. Nowhere else was there sun for the entire day. And then about halfway through the day, little patches of snow. And I was like, oh, neat. Little patches of snow in the desert. That's fun. But the more, the farther north that I went, the elevation rose a little bit. I got, I got like just pure snow on the ground, a dusting at first and then two inches, three inches. And then I was, suddenly I was driving through four inches of, of snow that nobody else had driven through before. And mm, fresh pow pow. Fresh pow pow, exactly. This is real thick snow. I could make, it was great snowball making snow, which nice. I did. I saw some aminals on your story. There, yeah, I had, God, maybe a hundred deer all day. Amazing. But I could see all the little animal tracks everywhere. And, and it was, it was on, it was in places that I, that I knew very well, places that I had been a dozen times before, but that looked and sounded so different than anything that I'd ever seen before. It was like experiencing the place all anew. And I don't know, I, 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 took, a, I took four or five rolls and it just, I don't know, it was, it was a really, really wonderful trip. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice. So how about you? What you been up to? <laughs> well, I have to break the news, you guys. As you probably have noticed, uh, that I haven't been sending you guys amazing stories from Maui because I didn't go. <laughs> Boo. You're not in Maui. No, I'm not in Maui. So, um, Shit. I'll try to make this quick. My sister's hotel was uh, that she was staying at before, you know, she found out that she had COVID was basically trying to kick her out <laughs> because they're like, oh, <laughs> like, yeah, you need to go to like a COVID uh, like hotel. Because I guess technically if you're not vaccinated and you don't have um, any sort of like test showing that you whatever, uh, you're actually supposed to go to one of those COVID motels and hang out for like 10 days or whatever. But mm -hmm. she had been vaccinated and, you know, all of that. So she probably got it when she was in Hawaii. Who knows? But yeah, so she was deal while she had COVID, <laughs> she was on the phone basically like all day, every day for the first like two or three days. Um, and luckily the health department there was like amazing to her. And I think maybe because she just like talked to them with like, I don't know, a little bit of respect <laughs> oh, sure. that they're yeah. doing their job. <laughs> that goes a long way. It really does. So um, they understood that she had a baby and that the baby didn't have COVID. And, you know, the baby's about 18 months old. So not seeing her mom for a couple days is already kind of getting to her. Oh, yeah. So I volunteered to go out there and they were going to pay for me. Um, unfortunately... Let's just make up like a fake hotel. Let's just say like, I don't know, Hyatt or something. Wait, that, um, is that a, wait, was Hyatt, it? Hyatt's fake? <laughs> Are you sure? It sort of sounds like a real hotel. I remember that from somewhere. <laughs> okay. Well, they weren't going to let me come. They were not going to let me stay. Um, and they were going to do 
everything possible to make sure that I did not come. They were not going to give me a parking pass. They were not going <laughs> to go like hang out. <laughs> Nothing. Wow, armed and, guards at the door. Dude, it was it was a little nuts. Um, yeah, they were just like, yeah, we're, we're not going to let her come and take care of your baby. You're going to have to figure something else out. Damn. So yeah, they she called me about 45 minutes before my flight to tell me that I can't come. <laughs> Uh, and I could technically, if I had about $4,000 to stay at the closest hotel to her, and then I could just like take the baby with me and stay in some random hotel with the baby. Oh, right. So it was just like kind of getting crazy. So basically, you know, I'm supposed to be boarding my flight and it got canceled. I got canceled and I kind of knew it. I knew it was kind of too good to be true. You know, all that dignity of reasonable amount of leg room and padding on the seat. Just my first class dreams. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe okay. we, maybe the podcast can fly you somewhere first class. That, that, Ooh. that seems like a, a reasonable use of our money. I don't know. Good luck with the accounting department. I've tried to run a few things by them and they are, <laughs> they're sticklers. Oh, they are. Yeah. Yeah. Our accounting department, it's business. Yes. Definitely. It really is. Uh, one thing I will say positive. Okay. Obviously, I was going out there to take care of her baby mm -hmm. and put myself in danger just in case the baby did like have COVID or whatever. And we had like a really solid conversation and I knew what the risks were and I was okay with it. So basically, I'm like the best sister ever, even though I didn't even have to do it <laughs> because I volunteered to do it. I said yes, so I'm kind of winning. <laughs> you you are the most humble sister. I really am. <laughs> Amazing. Each episode, we put on our house slippers and our cozy cardigans and check our warm and fuzzy answering machine. We really get, we really take this seriously. We get very into it. So we ask our listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever question we come up with. And Vanya, what is the question this time around? Tell us about your bad habits. What other things do you do while developing film? Hmm, I wonder how you got that one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess we'll have to see. Now, I was expecting I was expecting more listeners to call in and be maybe no. a little more honest about no. this. But apparently <laughs> our listeners are the best film developers in the film community. They are always single-minded and on do task. everything on task, do everything properly, and that's definitely because of us on Dev Party. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But we well, did get if, four. It's, if that's one of you guys, just do me a favor and take your right hand and just give yourself a little pat on the back. It's okay. It's, it's okay to do that. I don't need to fucking murder the cat. I'm not home right now. So when you hear the tone, leave a message, dude. And as soon as I get home, I'll get back to you. I really, really will. I'm not looking for a job because I got to pay my and I'm not home right now. So leave a message when you hear the My bad habit? I'm about to do it. 
I'm going to stand develop a roll of black and white film while developing some E6 8x10. We'll see how that goes. This is Jamie Maldonado and Jamie M Photo pretty much everywhere. Thanks. That's a lot of steps. A lot of a lot of temperature happening. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, stand uh, he I, I don't know if he's doing like semi stands where he puts like a timer on for 20 30 minutes and then does like a little you know in yeah. the middle. I would hope but so. But I guess that's not too bad. No, I guess not cuz if you're doing an hour long stand, that's a half hour or maybe I do I guess I do I do uh, agitation 20 and 40 minutes. So that would be two timers for me. I would need two timers for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't that's a little risky, but not the not the worst. Not the worst. If that's what I mean, if that's the worst that you're you're doing, you're doing okay. Yeah. Hey Eric and Vanya, John Michael here. I have two bad habits when I'm developing film. Um, the first one is developing more film while I'm developing film. I use old East German triplex tanks, and they each hold one roll. So if I'm doing multiple rolls, then I'll line up three or four tanks and kind of go down the line of agitating each one after another. Uh, three is okay, four gets pretty tight, and uh, two is two is pretty easy. My other bad habit is if I'm just doing one roll, is I'll be uh, using the timer on my iPad and then be playing around on my phone looking for other information while I'm developing. So those are my two bad habits when I'm developing film. Have you ever done that? Just yes. like going, going from one tank to the next tank to the next tank? Yep. Two hands too, like this. Mm-hmm. Like, like this. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I like that. Exactly like that. <laughs> it's talent. You got it. I mean, some people have it and he just has it. It's talent. It, it is, it's got to be talent. I'll do like two Stearman press tanks when I'm, so I can get eight sheets done. But that's, you know, it's still, it's kind of like doing one big Stearman press tank, which uh, if you work for Stearman press or if you are, it's probably just one guy. Maybe a tank that fits eight sheets. That'd be kind of cool. Sturman. <laughs> Mr. Stearman. Mr. Stearman. Make us an eight sheet tank, please. Yes. Okay. That reminds me of the of mega tank which i have still it's in my closet oh like a yankee tank or something like yeah, that yeah no 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 it's not a yankee i okay. think it's a patterson possibly but john if you live in the united states and you want it i will give it to you you could probably fit at least two liters of chemicals in it <laughs> that's a lot of chemicals <laughs> yeah you could do so many reels you might need a, an additional person person for agitation maybe just like you know one person the other person you know <laughs> a big seesaw kind of contraption exactly yes hi this is jesse uh j renew at instagram um one of the things i have trouble with with developing is not so much what i'm doing during it but what i'm not doing and that's agitating I am the worst at agitating. I admittedly am usually staring at my phone or wandering off into space or listening to a podcast and just forget to give the canister a shake. Um, eventually I remember, but it's not in any real format or time. It's when I remember to shake that thing. Anyway, thanks guys. Bye. That sounds weirdly familiar <laughs> to me. Vanya, does it seem at all familiar to you? Yeah, it does. <laughs> Yeah, that's basically me. And I'm doing a podcast while not agitating. <laughs> that's true. I'll, I'll, we'll be doing deaf parties and like I'll, I'll hear myself agitating and, and I can generally hear when you agitate. And sometimes yeah. you do it. Mm, sometimes. Or I'm pretty we, bad at it. You are kind of. But I'm, I mean, 
you're getting photo- better. Yeah, yeah, you are. You are. I think, yeah. I mean, I've said this before, from when we started Dev Party to now, you've become such a, a, a much better film developer. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's really neat practice, to see. Practice, practice, practice. Hey, it's Jeff from Dirty Grain Photos, and it's confession time. Forgive me, Eric and Vanya, for I have sinned. I usually have an open beverage of beer next to my photochemicals, which may not be the safest in the world, but I'm not dead yet, so hey, there's that. Um, Also, I may be a little loose with my temperatures and times. I only have like a cheap meat thermometer that I use to check the temperatures and if I'm like a few degrees off I'll be like ah you know what you get an extra minute in the developer and I always get pictures almost so I don't really care if they don't come out perfect it's part of the charm and if it's if I'm having fun and I like what I'm getting is it really a sin after all I think not. I do question Jeff's concept of sin, but. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, to each yeah. their own. No, I I have done the drink thing where instead of like grabbing my drink, I grabbed the tank to like drink out of the tank before. I didn't drink it, but I almost did. I was like, oh my God, like what? What's going on here? We, we should make a list of the developers that you can actually drink and, and survive. Not just you can, you can you can drink any of them. Technically, yeah, he's like me, loose on the temps. I I had no <laughs> idea you were that loose on the temps until I, I guess it was with the last dev party, the one before that. You kind of called me out for being like strict about my temps, and I'm really not, but I'm just more strict uh, than you are. Yeah, it was the stop bath. You were temping the water of your stop bath. Yes, of course. And I just put water in it. I do not. I do not put, I mean, obviously it's not too cold, too hot, you know, you just touch it. And, okay. That's good. I'm going to go on a limb and say that the temperature of your stop bath is as important as the temperature of your developer. If not as important, like just almost like really like teeny tiny little bit less, but it is very important. My Lone Pine pictures, the black and white expired film, T-Max. Yeah, sure. Water developer. Not tempered. Stop bath, straight water, TF4 fixer, done. Well, but but you understand the temps all do have an effect on it. <laughs> well, that effect was good, so I think I'm doing all right. Yeah, but you know, too hot, you will get reticulation. Too cold, I don't know. Maybe it's something we should test someday at an incredibly boring dev party. Jeff, do five Hail Mary photo shots on your next photo walk, and you will be forgiven of all sins. What is a Hail Mary photo shot? Hands up. Hail Mary. Yeah, oh, sure. It's like you put your hands up in the air and you take a shot. Mm-hmm. It's a Hail Mary. So for our answers, tune into the next dev party. We'll tell you all about our bad habits when it comes to developing. One of us might have a few more than the other, but maybe you'll be surprised. Who knows? But the next question, and this is for the last episode of this front half of the season. So we can take a little break after that. Don't worry. We'll be back. What is the question? for the next answering machine message. Which fictional character would you replace one or both of us with? Here's your chance. We're not gonna let you replace this with real people. That would that would be soul crushing and, and our egos cannot handle that. But we have decided that 
we'd be okay with being replaced by fictional characters, maybe somebody from, from literature or a cartoon character or perhaps someone from a movie. Most celebrities are fictional characters and they would count. Nice. And now for something completely Tiffin. So, I want to discuss a personal project of mine, and I'm sorry if I've already mentioned it, but bear with me. Um, it's a cyanotype contact print booklet, I guess. The entire thing is the size of a 6x6 negative with a bit of a border to allow for binding and stuff, but I chose 6x6 not only because I am a sucker for square format, but because I wanted to shoot this project exclusively on the Hasselblad 500CM. The booklet is made entirely by hand because it is essentially a collection of cyanotypes, and I even made a cover for it with like stencils and shit. But yeah, I would coat some paper, place my negative atop it, have it bake in the sun for a while, wash, shock the crap out of it in hydrogen peroxide, judge the print, if it was good enough, hang it up to dry and add it to the pile. The booklet is called Happy Places, and it is a compilation of locations where I've felt my happiest. But there's more to it than that, so let's dive into it. So the concept behind Happy Places was to visit locations where I once felt my absolute worst. I'm talking like the lowest a person can possibly feel. Initially, these were my favorite places to exist because they are scenic and peaceful and just overall very comforting. To give you an idea, I'm talking about lookout points, lakes, grass fields, places like that. So at some point I went through some not very good times and as a result, Whenever I would feel like the world was swallowing me whole, I would run away to one of my safe spaces and just cry or ponder. But in the process of seeking comfort in comforting places, I began to associate these once happy places with bad memories and feelings. So I stayed away for a while. Then I came across a quote that read, laugh in the places you once cried, change the narrative. And I was like, heck yeah, bro, I can definitely do that. Let's go. Um, I thought it would be neat to document the process and potentially make something out of the images. I also defaulted to using the HASI because it's incredibly portable and unobtrusive. Coincidentally, as I decided to embark on this Chronicles of Narnia style narrative changing journey, I met someone who made me really, 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 really happy. And like the cool kids back in the 80s used to say, we started to go around. So I would take them with me to these places without them having any knowledge of how devastated I felt the last time I visited. And we would stand or sit and talk and just have a grand old time. In the end, I would tell them like, oh, you know, the last time I was here, so and so happened, but now this has become a place I cherish once again. Then I would venture off and photograph the area because that's what we film nerds do. And that would be that. Along the way, I began to include sites that they and I would visit, and it became a hodgepodge of places where the narrative was changed and places where they and I made some awesome memories. So as a result, I was planning on gifting this booklet to them because, you know, my corny ass thought it would be cute and all, but oh man. <laughs> Unfortunately, prior to me feeling like the booklet was complete, she realized that I did not and could not ever make her as happy as she made me and decided to communicate this, which is totally fine. I mean, I wasn't fine for a hot minute, but the fact that she was honest is cool. Like between us fam, I was very quick to come to terms with the entire situation, primarily because of some advice my dad gave me a while back, which I'm about to share with y'all just in case anyone needs it. 
He said, todos tenemos derecho, which translates to we all have the right to, and then you apply it to any aspect of your life. Like, we all have the right to be happy, the right to say no, the right to establish boundaries. Or fuck, the right to light a doobie and binge watch Futurama all day if that's your speed. But I accepted it for what it was, and that was that. But then I was faced with a few choices. A. Trashing happy places because the recipient was no longer. B. Abandoning the project and relegating it to a plastic bin where all my photo projects retire to. Or C. Finding a way to breathe new life into something that brought me incredible joy. Which I knew was going to be a bit difficult since I become an intensely creative person when I'm in love. So when you remove love out of the equation, my creative spark does tend to dwindle. Shockingly, my cynical ass chose C. And the way I went about continuing this project was by inserting a chapter 2, which includes prints from new areas I've discovered and a few mediocre portraits too, because sometimes a happy place can be a person. Granted, I haven't added prints to the booklet since early September, just because of hashtag life, but I'm thinking of putting the finishing touches on it during winter break. The upside of this no longer being somewhat of a personalized project for one individual is that I can potentially make copies of happy places and share my work with others, which would be a totally rad first for me. But yeah, there you have it, the ups and downs of turning frowns upside down. And on that embarrassing note, I'ma head out and stuff my face with some leftover pumpkin chiffon pie, which is a thing apparently, did y'all know about this? Oh. But if y'all have any questions about the technical aspects of making cyanotypes directly from a negative, or wanna spaz out when I tell you that I get better prints from C41 negs than black and white negs, let me know. Okay, okay, bye. This is the story of Viewmaster. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the Viewmaster click like this. Let's begin. William Gruber, a German organ maker and inventor living in Portland, Oregon, was fascinated by stereoscopes, the devices that simulated a 3D effect using specially designed stereo cards with two photos printed on them, one for each eye. When viewed at a certain distance, the images combined to form a stereo image, the 3D effect. But by the 1930s, the stereoscopes designed by Oliver Wendell Holmes during the Civil War were falling out of fashion. The cards were tattered and were in black and white. With the release of Kodachrome Color slide film in 1935, Gruber began to create his own 3D slides using independent cameras spaced a few inches apart. When he combined the images in his prototype viewer, they appeared in 3D. But William Gruber wasn't the only one in Portland interested in this. There was also Harold Graves, president of Sawyer's Photo Finishing and Postcard Business, the largest such business in the United States. One fine day in 1938, at Oregon Caves National Monument, Mr. Graves came upon Mr. Gruber taking pictures with his twin camera setup. Graves asked Gruber why he had two cameras strapped together. A good question. Gruber told Graves that he was taking stereo photos and was working on an invention through which to view them. Mr. Graves took Mr. Gruber's idea to his business partner, Edwin Eugene Mayer, who had also tried his hand at inventing a stereo photograph viewer. 
Graves was convinced that Gruber's invention would sell and wanted to invest, but could only offer him a cut of whatever profits they'd make together. Over the next year, they came up with a concept that is iconic, even to this day, the Viewmaster. And by April 1939, still a year before their patent was approved, they introduced their Viewmaster to the New York World's Fair. This is also where RCA introduced television, DuPont introduced nylon, and Einstein gave a speech about cosmic rays. What fairgoers witnessed was a futuristic improvement upon the stereo cards of old. Using a stereoscope, which every antique store is legally required to sell, the grandparents of these spectators could look at 3D rendering of individual photographs taken with special stereo cameras. Stereo photos predated the Civil War, and so by 1939, they were old hat. What Viewmaster provided was an exciting update. Round cardboard circles, which they called reels, held 14 16-millimeter Kodachrome transparencies, which were made into seven pairs of photos, one for each eye. When looked at through the Viewmaster, they would be rendered in 3D. And with a flick of the lever, the reel would advance to the next 3D photo. In a small window below the viewers was a space for text describing what you were looking at. The biggest advancement over stereo cards was that these were transparencies. With the old stereo cards, light was reflected off the card into the viewer. The Viewmaster used Kodachrome slides, so you got incredibly vibrant and intense colors when viewing with the natural light coming through the frosted glass in front of the slides. Though seen as basically a toy now, in the beginning they were sold as kind of a replacement for the postcard. That idea never fully caught on, but the Viewmaster reels could be purchased alongside postcards for decades. The reels would go for 35 cents each, for almost $7 in today's money. The viewers sold for $1.50, which is about 30 now. Sold mostly in National Park Visitor Centers, Viewmaster reels focused on tourist stops and natural wonders. During World War II, the Army commissioned Viewmaster to produce military-specific reels for training purposes, things like spotting enemy tanks and aircraft identification. They were also sold in photo stores, as was the Viewmaster personal camera, sort of a half-frame thing. Using 35mm film, the stereo camera would take 36 images, capturing two frames with each exposure, one for each eye. After your slide film was developed, you'd use the Viewmaster's film cutter to manually cut out the tiny 16-millimeter squares to mount in blank reels. These were available into the early 1990s. The only reason production was stopped was that the machine broke and Fisher-Price decided not to fix it. If all of this seemed needlessly complex, that's because it was. I mean, I mean, why not just use 35mm film with a 35mm stereo film viewer? Well, that idea was already taken by the TrueView company, which released their own take on the stereoscope in 1931, eight years before the Viewmaster. To operate the TrueView, you'd insert your 35mm stereo film strip, and, like the Viewmaster that followed, with a flick of the lever, the film would be advanced to the next frame. Viewmaster had to innovate to not simply be a carbon copy of TrueView. There was a bit of competition between Viewmaster and TrueView, with the latter holding the rights to Disney. But in 1951, a year before the Viewmaster personal camera was introduced, that was all resolved when Viewmaster bought out TrueView and shit-canned the entire product line, keeping the mouse for themselves. 
Through the 1950s, Viewmaster expanded their selection of reels into a variety of areas, focusing a great deal of attention upon children's cartoons and Bible stories, which they would shoot in the Viewmaster studios. It's bizarre. There's actually a whole long thing about the, the Viewmaster Bible stories. That's not, a, that's not a tale for us to tell. But by the end of the decade, most of their offerings were narrative in nature, taking up three reels. This era also saw the introduction of the battery-operated Viewmaster, the coveted Model F, which took two huge C batteries. If you wanted to stay up late and look at those Lassie and Timmy reels when your parents thought you were sleeping, just ask Santa to bring you a Model F. At the height of their popularity, Viewmaster was bought by GAF in 1966. GAF, or the General Aniline and Film Company, is more commonly known as ANSCO, the film and camera company that they merged with in 1939. 1939 was a busy as hell year. Though now an ANSCO, more officially a GAF product, Viewmaster still used Kodachrome film, not ANSCO chrome, despite that emulsion being introduced in 1955. Through the 1960s, GAF slowly converted the film stock to an E6 process, probably using Kodak Ektachrome, though some Viewmaster reels used Kodachrome into the mid-1970s. GAF also went full-on into the idea that the Viewmaster really was a children's toy. While still offering some tourist reels, they widely expanded their list of cartoons. They also introduced a non-3D viewer that looked like a miniature TV. There were also talking Viewmasters that would play a bit of audio with each image. It was actually, the audio was recorded on like a little record <gasps> that was attached to the viewer and the needle would spin rather than the record spin, I believe. It didn't last very long. But it seemed like each new product they would introduce was geared towards kids. And in 1980, they made like a flashlight looking thing that would, you put the, the reel into the flashlight and you project it on the wall and I really wanted one of these so that I could watch Star Wars at home. And Star Wars wouldn't be released on VHS until 1982. So this was like the only way you could see it other than movie theater. And we wouldn't get a VCR until 1985 or something. So By that time, Viewmaster would be sold off as an independent company and then bought by the Ideal Toy Company, makers of the Rubik's Cube. In 1989, it went to Tyco and then to Mattel in 1997. A dozen years later, it ended up at Fisher-Price. It was obvious that the Viewmaster was in decline. When digital came around, Fisher-Price decided to stop producing anything but reels featuring animation cells. In the 2010s, there was some effort to team up with Google for a Viewmaster VR headset, but that's a whole nother thing and it since has been discontinued. Now, you can still buy knockoff Viewmasters for pretty cheap, maybe like 15 bucks, maybe 20. And the old reels are easy to come by in any antique store on eBay. There are even companies that will make custom reels for you using your digital photos. The slides are printed on a transparency of some kind, but they'll, they'll still work in your Viewmasters. And that's sort of the state of Viewmaster now. There's, they're not really around anymore. So, Vanya, did you have a Viewmaster when you were growing up? Yes. I actually had the red one. This black one I got mm, probably like 10 years ago. Oh, me too. We both um, have the same like old Bakelite Viewmaster. Yeah. And this, I got this one specifically because 
these were pictures of uh, Redwood Highway and north of Crescent City. And so I was like, bro, kind of have to have these. So it's really, really neat. Yeah, I, I have no reels except for one about, uh, I think it's I think it's US Highway 1 in the Florida Keys or something. But as a kid, I had, for some reason in my head, it, it was orange, but I think it was just the red one that maybe faded a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think they produced an orange one. No, I think it was red. I think it was red. Sure. I mean, maybe they could have done it. Red with like orange. a little blue, a little blue button on the handle. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that was definitely red. Well, also, we didn't actually touch on it because it was like such a short blip. But the old Sawyer Bakelite ones, they made in blue and brown as well. But then they realized that people just like didn't really care about what color <laughs> it was. So they were just like, yeah, let's just keep it black. It's fine. So ours is technically black because mine looks brownish. Mine's black. Okay. Does yours look a little brown? Nope. No? Okay. Mine looks a little brown, but I think it's the same thing. Maybe just a little mm-hmm. faded or Perhaps. something. Perhaps. I don't know. So just like the CDVs, I've been searching for new reels and I've found like there's some with like lots and lots of reels and I'm like, oh God, this is a nightmare. Now we also found that they were used for medical purposes. Yes. Like to teach people anatomy and yes. there were some x-ray ones as well. But yes. you found the one that was a, a bit odd? Oh my gosh. It, yes, it's about the clitoris. And <laughs> it's like a medical book about it. And then there's like pictures to go along with it. I really want it. <laughs> also, if you guys were wondering what it is, you can come over. I'll show it to you. Not mine. Just the Jesus Christ, Vanya. <laughs> In our last episode, we talked about autochrome color photos, saying, We can't make ourselves anyway. We can't make autochromes today. Not easily. (laughs) And with that, we got a bunch of folks messaging us saying that we should talk to Jonathan Todd Hilty. And so here we are. And let's give him a call. Hello. Hey. hey. <laughs> How's it going, everyone? Awesome. Going good. really well. You? Uh, I'm doing good. Yeah. Good. So a lot of people uh, messaged me about you as soon as our episode aired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was yeah. really, really cool, actually. Several. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, we, we said in the episode, actually, we were pretty sure that you couldn't do autochromes. We were wrong. <laughs> so I guess let's start with just like, how you got started in photography? I guess I, I always kind of liked it. Um, I remember like my parents buying me like little cameras as a kid and me just like going through them. But I wasn't like interested in it as a hobby until high school. We had a black and white photography class. Um, my girlfriend at the time had taken it. I w- probably wouldn't have otherwise. I just wanted to be in the same class as her. Um, but it was all... Uh, I really liked all, all the hands-on stuff. They had a whole, you know, dark room and big old enlargers and all that fun stuff. Uh, I really took to it, and uh, I, I always took it as an elective for the rest of high school. Um, uh, I really liked that stuff. And then uh, by the time I graduated, I got really, really lucky at a flea market and got, like, this huge darkroom set for $20. Like, enlarger, tray. It was, like, literally everything but tongs and chemicals. Amazing. Um, <laughs> 
it was nuts. So, yeah, so I I set that up in a tiny little closet and uh, just kept doing it ever since. Um, so that covers you know the the regular photography. How did you get into historical processes? Because you you do a number of them. I think the thing that really set me down this rabbit hole. I had made like a pinhole camera. And uh, I just I just thought it was so cool to be able to, like, just make a camera, like, all by yourself. And the other thing would be, at one point, I didn't have a lot of money. So I, I was always, like, trying to conserve chemicals and things like that. And at one point, uh, the developer went bad, and I just didn't have money to order, like, a new pack. I couldn't buy it locally. Um, and I looked up, like, can you make your own developer? You know, and Caffinol C is a pretty common one. And I was like, oh, no way. And then <laughs> um, making that myself... You know, it's like, it kind of gets you thinking. It's like, what else What else can you do yourself? Yeah. And yeah, so all these historical processes, they all have a basis in being able to do these things from scratch. What did you find fascinating about autochromes? So I guess at, at some point, I, I kind of went from process to process. Like the, the fun in it for me was like learning the new process. And kind of once I got the hang of it, I sort of would lo- lose interest mm-hmm. and move on to something else. Mm-hmm. And eventually I just got sick of, doing black and white all together. I thought it'd be really, really cool to try to do color photography by yourself. Can Is that possible? And I did the tricolor gums for a while mm-hmm. and I ended up getting really frustrated with those. Um, but doing a lot of research, probably it was right around I graduated college. I was like, oh, like autochromes, like the this seems feasible. Like I get the, I get the theory behind it. That mm-hmm. makes sense. It, this yeah. doesn't seem that hard. <laughs> so that, that um, really enticed me. And it always kind of stuck with me. I guess it's, I mean, the, the idea is really simple. It's like an old TV. Mm-hmm. You know, you're basically doing with three color pixels. Yeah, exactly. Yep. But the process, we talked about it a little bit in the last episode, is, I mean, at least then it was seen as a very industrialized thing. There isn't really any history of people making this themselves. Yeah. So, like, I won't pretend that, you know, I, I did all the research myself because I really didn't. It's a lot of what I've done is very much standing on the shoulders of giants here where I've just, how would I say it? I beat my head against the wall so hard that I broke through eventually. <laughs> um, but but all the all the really smart stuff uh, was stuff that uh, the Lumieres had figured out already. Mm-hmm. Are you guys familiar with the book, the Lumiere Autochrome, History, Technology, and Preservation? No, no, we don't have that. Historians um, who were interested in this process uh, actually found the original like Lumiere notes and oh. translated them and published like photocopies of them in the book. Wow. And they thoroughly document, you know, each stage that goes into making an autochrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was like, th- that information was invaluable to me. Um, oh, wow. it, it, it was hard making all the pieces work together um, and because there's a lot of nuance mm-hmm. in that process that didn't, make it into the notes that I kind of had to figure out, but mm-hmm. I, I owe pretty much everything I've done uh, to these guys. Uh, so have you been able to study any like, original autochrome plates for your experiments? Like, do you have any original autochromes that you've collected? Yeah, I have a couple, not many. I, when I, when I first got into the process, um, probably the, fir- the first uh, four or five months, I didn't really have any basis to compare it to. Um, so I, I eventually I bought these things cause they're sometimes you can get them for cheap. Um, but they're usually, usually the cheaper ones are damaged or there's something wrong with them. Um, so I saved up a little bit and got them and, uh, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have a really a way to show them off at all right now. <laughs> um, but I've got a little collection going. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the process yeah, yeah. about how it all, how it all comes together. I mean, uh, for 
those who haven't listened to last week's episode, how about explain what it, what exactly an autochrome is like materially on the plate? Sure. So uh, ultimately, an autochrome plate is is a positive color uh, slide. So it's so it's transparent or partially transparent, I should say. Um, you have to view it with a, a light behind it to see it. Um, uh, when I say positive, I mean the, the plate that you're exposing in the camera is going to be your final photograph. So you kind of have to get everything right then, uh, which adds to the challenge a little bit. Um, yeah, that, that's the bird's eye view. Um, it, it's using kind of a matrix of uh, little uh, particles of starch, and they're dyed, uh, you could say dyed red, blue, green, but it's sort of an orange, red, green, violet. Uh, so very okay. similar to RGB. Um, it forms kind of a matrix. Uh, and just like you said, like a television screen, um, you know, these, uh, these colors or these three basic colors manifest as more complex colors, um, zoomed out. It uses a layer of black and white emulsion. And when I say emulsion, it's, it's not all that different from like black and white film. It just uses that on top of this starch layer to mask out the colors that you don't want and open up the colors that you do and let the light pass through that. That's incredible. Are you using similar techniques or do you have more modern powders for your colors, for the layers? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to be as faithful as possible, but there are some very, very distinct differences. Um, the actual colors of the starch, I think, are pretty darn close. Um, they they had pretty detailed instructions on exactly the proportions of dyes. Um, each color, there's probably, I think there's anywhere from like three to five different like types of dyes that they, they all wow. mix together when you're dyeing this starch, um, which seems kind of crazy to me. But that was one thing where I was like, okay, this, this probably works. Um, I'm not even going to me- mess with trying to get um, easily available dyes or whatever. So I'll just do it. I'll do it the original way. So if my understanding of how the Lumiere's did it, as far as made the plates, they somehow was it sprinkled the the powdered dye on the on the plate and then pressed it. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to kind of just go through each layer and and kind of talk about how that goes into it? Yeah. Why don't we do okay. that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so they would start with just big old glass sheets. And I, I think these were pretty darn huge because they, they wouldn't cut them down until the very end. So I, I want to say a couple feet wide, maybe, and, and very long, um, go down this big old conveyor. Uh, and they would cover that in like, a like a very, very thin solution of like rubber in, I think they used benzene. You wouldn't want to do that nowadays. Uh, um, but basically you dissolve latex in, in this solvent. I use, I use toluene when I do it. Um, and it forms like a, when it dries, it forms like a, a, like an optically, like totally clear, very, very thin layer, but it's sticky. It's like if, if you like diluted rubber cement, like mm-hmm. 10 to one with you know some other solvent, it'd be super thin, a little bit sticky. Um, and then they would run into some sort of chamber um, where they would, they would dust it on. I think they kind of, the, I'm not sure what the mechanism looked like exactly, but they had this starch pre-mixed, so all these colors are mixed together, and they would it would kind of uh, stick one layer on, you know, uh, to the the glass sheet, and they could brush the rest off. Um, so at this stage, the the starch particles are there are still particles; they're they're round. And if you would look at pictures, there's um they're little they're little spheres, even if it's just one layer on this glass, and there's just a lot of open space in between them that uh, that light's getting through. 
Um, and so they would run it into this, they call it a, like a press. And it, they had this kind of, it, it looked like a, almost like a windshield wiper kind of motion. And they would use like these knitting needles, um, specially made for this. And it would wipe back and forth across the plate and it would crush them. Um, it'd smash these things flat so that there's, uh, one, a lot more light can pass through. Cause now they're kind of flat, like, um, like a stained glass rather than a ball. Mm-hmm. And two, there's just a lot less light in between the grains, uh, getting through. Yeah. Okay. And then they would finally fill up all the interstitial space here with lamp black. So like charcoal kind of, um, very, very, very fine particulate powder would, would fill up all the gaps in between these particles. So the, the, the next thing they would do is they would call this, this step, the second varnish. I didn't say the, the, the rubber, the rubber layer was technically the first varnish. The, this second varnish was based off of, um, uh, nitrocellulose and Damar gum primarily. Okay. And uh, it serves to kind of encase all the starch because if, if the starch gets wet, you know, the, the dyes are going to run and they, they leak and all that. So it, it, it forms a nice protective layer over the starch particles. It's super duper thin, which is really, really important. Um, and it's watertight and the gelatin can stick to it. There's a lot of varnishes that I tried. I tried replacing this uh, with some sort of modern equivalent. I just couldn't because a lot of it, all these criteria wouldn't fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, th- this old school method definitely works the best. Yeah. And then they would coat that, the gelatin on top and that's all light sensitive from there and cut it down and you got your autochrome plate. Is your process at all different from theirs? Well, for instance, like how did they pressed it with, like we said, like knitting needles of, of you know, small rollers or something mm-hmm. is how do you, how do you press yours? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good question. Um, I have not been able to replicate how they did it with that pressing, which it's okay at my stage right now um, because I'm not a factory pushing these things out. I just kind of make it myself. Are you familiar with what a CNC router is? Yeah. Okay. So I modified it so that instead of having a spindle, like uh, uh, I I made like this little custom fitting that has just like a plastic roller, like a little wheel. Mm -hmm. And it just, it it connects with the plate. I, I wrote this CNC program. Um, so it just it presses presses down on the plate and rolls across and then lifts up and moves over like half a millimeter and goes back down and rolls across and it just oh, goes wow. back and forth for it usually takes about fifteen minutes to press a four by five. Uh, how many glass plates have you broken? A <laughs> ton. <laughs> I am. I need to. I'm overdue to sweep out my dark room. Um, I'm so clumsy. I'm so clumsy. So yeah, it's so frustrating to get, especially when you're like right at the end, you know, you put all this time into making just one of these and then you drop it. Um, well, okay. So you have the plates made mm-hmm. and that's, you know, half the fun. So shooting them, mm-hmm. what goes into that? Right now, mine are still pretty slow and that's because I use, or at least for the last couple of years, I've used like a simple but kind of straightforward emulsion recipe. Um, I, I'm, I wasn't shooting for speed so much as just getting consistent, colorful results. And I figured, okay, once I really have that figured out and I feel comfortable with that, I'll work on making these emulsions faster. So um, typically, my exposures range from usually about 30 seconds to at worst four minutes in sunlight. Um, okay. And that's usually the, the when they when they run longer like that, it's because uh, my plates are they might be hypersensitive to green or they're not quite balanced. So I have to use a, a bunch of filtration 
during exposure to correct for that, but that just, you know, you're just less lights hitting the plate. It takes forever. But I'm I'm hoping by spring, it's kind of my winter project right now, is I'm trying to make these this faster emulsion. So I'd really, really like to get it down to like one second exposures in sunlight. Okay. So like I said before, this is a, a positive process. So you have a glass plate and a camera. The autochromes are exposed a little bit differently than normal glass negatives. Typically, glass negatives are exposed with the emulsion facing towards the lens and the, and the glass facing away. Uh, but for autochromes to work, the, the light has to pass through the starch layer first. So autochromes are shot backwards with the emulsion facing away from the lens and the glass facing forward. And because of that, it kind of offsets the focal plane. So I had to make my own yeah. ground glass, uh, which is just you know the same glass stock I use. And I just you just have the ground part on the outside, so that's not so bad. Oh, okay. Um, I like to use those. I don't know if you've seen them on eBay, those like Primo pack film holders. Um, I have a little 3d printed insert that I use to kind of hold it in correctly. Cause that's with those I can, I can use it and hold it like right against where I know it's going to be in focus. There's so many variables. What about you start shooting in spring and say you're shooting a scene that's mostly green. Are you adjusting for that? Are you adjusting for specific colors? It's interesting. Um, no, I'm not. So you have to be really, really careful with light levels because, as I kind of alluded to earlier, if you overexpose it, if you underexpose it, there's a little bit you can do post hoc in the darkroom, but you're not dealing with like a, a, a glass negative exposure type of deal or, or a larger type of deal where you can fix that. Mm -hmm. um, as far as colors go, what I found really interesting that kind of surprised me about this process is that the closer you get to having all three colors perfectly balanced, the more saturated the color in that play is going to be. Hmm. So eventually when you find a filter combination that really, really works, um, I, I, I stick to it and I, I don't, uh, I, I don't vary from that. So since you, since this is essentially panchromatic emulsion, you can't develop these under red light, can you? Correct. Yeah. Okay. I coat them under just, the dimmest red light I possibly can, which so like coding used to be very difficult for me. About development, though, uh, one thing that's actually pretty cool for the autochrome to be processed into a positive, you would do kind of a typical black and white reversal process. You would be using like the the first developer bleach redevelop type of deal. So yeah, it, with these plates, you do the first development in the dark, um, and after after you you like wash it super thoroughly, it's lights on after that. Uh, which which makes it really, really nice moving from bath to bath and kind of seeing how the plate changes. And you can kind of, now that you've been doing it for so long, you can kind of see what it should look like for the second development. Usually I'll have a pretty good idea if it turned out well or not, just seeing how it looks just by like reflected light coming out of the first developer. But mm -hmm. you really have a good idea if it turned out well or not after clearing. So well, what kind of developer do you use then for the first developer? This is another thing that uh, Frederick Mosellan helped me out with. I, w I was using D19 because uh, I, I read people like to use that in these reversal processes. And um, I tried to recreate some of the, the original autochrome stuff. Man, I've, I think I've tried like every printed first developer I could find in like those old photo journals and things and I could not get it to work. I, I dilute D19, one to three, and then I add a little bit of um, potassium thiocyanate, which is a silver solvent that kind of helps eat away at uh, the highlights when you're doing this reversal step. It, it really clears up and, and makes it, it really opens it up. 
so I, I played with the concentrations myself and I, I eventually found one that worked and I haven't really uh, messed with it too much since. This seems like an incredible pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> what keeps you coming back to it? I wonder that sometimes. And I, I think it's a lot of these processes, I, the fun of it was learning it. And then once I learned it, I kind of did any ideas that I had in it. I'd sort of, I kind of burnt out. And this ended up taking probably three years until I was able to consistently get good results with it. So it was just the the biggest photographic problem I've ever tried to solve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's made up of 50 smaller problems that I'm just doing one at a time. Being able, just never losing interest and just really, really striving to to have good results, I think I eventually just, it just really became like my process. Like I, I just really liked it. And that just keeps me coming. Are, are you are you fully satisfied with your results? No, no, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that that could be another reason why I haven't burned out on it. I, I want to get them faster. You you may have seen some of my more recent plates. I'm actually, I'm finally moving on to the quote unquote higher resolution, smaller grain stuff. Those are working, but they're not nearly as colorful as my larger grain ones. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, getting them faster, getting them colorful. Yeah. And it, it would be cool to actually like sell these en masse um, to anyone who wants to shoot yes. with them. Yes. Keep me yeah. in mind. <laughs> I did pro or I did publish a guide going through the whole process. Um, so okay. we could put that in the show notes too, if you guys are. Yeah, yelling. absolutely. Um, I think it's a really cool process. I want anyone who wants to be able to do that to have like the, at least be able to work off of what I've done and, you know, hopefully uh, other people can be making these too someday. Well, Thank you so much for talking with us. And I'm really excited to hear how it's going to go this winter for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, like I said, I love talking about this stuff. So happy to do it. All right. Bye bye. All, right, All right. Take it easy, guys. Bye bye. In the main feature, we talked about Alphonse Bertillon, the French police photographer responsible for the creation of mugshots. Bertillion, an exacting fellow, noted all sorts of things about the human face. He believed that things like ear size or arm length might determine someone's criminal potentiality. This is, of course, a bit bananas, but Bertillion systematically mapped the human body as a way to help identify criminals. He's also known for inventing a slew of forensic techniques. In the late 1800s, he was placed in charge of crime scene photos. Just what constituted such photography up to that point is sort of anyone's guess. Cameras then were huge, requiring tripod and glass plates. While photography was probably used to some extent, it was not yet systematic and essential. Bertillion set about to change all of that. After arriving at a crime scene, Bertillion would start by taking photos. This was before doing anything else. He wanted to capture the scene as closely as it appeared when the murder happened. He would expose half a dozen plates from various angles, capturing every detail of the room, from the chairs lying on their sides to blood splatter on the walls. The body appeared in nearly every shot. While photos of disheveled, lifeless bodies are themselves unnerving, Bertillion, in his pursuit of perfectly capturing the crime scene, invented a way to get an almost unnatural God's eye view of the victim. At first glance, his invention looks like a tall tripod with a camera, 
facing down attached to it. Essentially, that's kind of what it was, but since this was a large format glass plate field camera, it wasn't so easy. The legs were attached to the camera at three points, two on either side, with the third point on a metal extension attaching to the base, the bottom, of the camera. The tripod and camera were carefully placed directly over the dead body so as not to disturb it. Actually, photographing with a camera set on a two-meter-tall tripod was not the nightmare you'd expect. First, the focus was pretty well fixed at two meters. Some adjustments, however, could be made through the use of a mirror positioned at an angle above the ground glass. In this way, the photographer could make sure the photo was crisp. And we'll have a picture of that because... It's hard to explain, yeah. <laughs> Using an incredibly wide-angled lens, maybe 75 millimeter on an 8x10 plate, the tripod legs would usually appear in the photo, but so would a god's-eye view of the victim. After the body was removed, he used his forensic techniques, such as dusting for fingerprints, before returning to the police station darkroom to develop the plates. Once visible, he would study them along with all the other data he collected at the scene. The photographs were simply one part of the investigation. They were, however, the most influential and the most lasting. Rotillion's crime scene photos, they have an artfulness to them. In a way, they're beautiful. But that was never really his goal, and it certainly wasn't his reason for taking the photos. Still, the man had an eye for composition. But oddly enough, we're not here to talk about Bertillion and his crime scene photographs. Not directly, anyway. A while back, we picked up two books on crime scene photos in hopes of making some larger peace with them. The first, titled Murder in the City, is a collection of glass plates from New York City in the 1910s and 1920s, and it's very much in the vein of Bertillion. It's almost kind of classy. The other, called Death Scenes, is a book of crime scene photos from 1940s LA. It's very candid, very matter-of-fact. Though the subjects are dead bodies, the way they are photographed is nearly the opposite of Bertillion, at least as far as unintentional artfulness went. It might seem a little obvious that photos of murder victims would be potentially unnerving and upsetting, but we were really, really ill-prepared to deal with the photos in one of these books. But first, what do these two books have in common? Uh, they are crime scene photos, and they're in black and white. There's dead bodies in mm -hmm. them. <laughs> they're, they're... Uh, they were taken by police officers, not photographers, technically. None of these photos are really meant to be viewed by the public at all. They're really not, no. ex they weren't even really expected to exist after the case was closed, maybe in a file somewhere, yes. but maybe not. And that goes for both books. Yeah, that is both books. But the, the big differences between the books, and I think the books are probably more different than they are alike, even though the subject mm -hmm. matter is identical, really. The New York book treats the victims, the murder victims with more respect, I think. The, the, the LA book, as opposed to the New York book, it treats the victims with a lot less respect. And there's not really mm -hmm. any context. And, and I don't know if the, the person putting it together, and we'll get to that, really had the context like the New York book does. So there's the plate versus roll, maybe, uh, because obviously you had a certain amount of plates that you can use. And then with roll film, you were able to probably photograph a lot more. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think plates, to our eyes anyway, I think they look classier. Yes, much wider angles. There is, yeah, there is that too. The cameras used in the 1910s, the New York City book, were much wider angle. The other ones were kind of snapshots, really. 
Yeah, so let's talk about murder in the city. Let's the New York one. Yeah. So that's 1910 to 1920. Yeah, this is the classy one. We'll start with the classy one. <laughs> the classy one. So these glass plates were apparently supposed to be dumped in the Hudson River after their usefulness. <laughs> that's what the 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 standard policy was to in the middle of the night when there's nobody around, dump glass plates of murder victims in the Hudson River. I kind of feel like in the 1910, 1920s, everything was dumped into Hudson yeah, River. I'm sure a lot of the murder victims ended up there themselves. <laughs> exactly. So how these were discovered was they were they were re um, like doing some renovation work on a headquarters, police headquarters in New York. And they found like, I don't know, a, a room under the stairs or something where mm-hmm. there were, you know, a couple thousand glass plates. It's so amazing. Can you imagine? Can I just have that? Like, can I be the person that finds the the glass plates for once? <laughs> yeah, really. And this kind of reminds me of Evelyn Cameron's story where all of her glass plates were discovered in a basement. Yeah. <laughs> the book was edited by Wilfred Kaut, and he added a lot of context using old newspaper clippings so he could kind of give a little bit of story behind the photos. Yeah, which is great. Very much our thing. <laughs> now the book, it's murder in in the city and kind of like sex in the city or sex and the city. <laughs> I think murder in the city is not the right title. It really should be murder and the city because because yeah. about half of the photos have nothing to do with murder at all. I've had this conversation before. Like we go to our main street or wherever our town square is and it looks just whatever. But we don't realize that in 20, 30 years, how much different this this place is going to be. So yeah. looking at these photos, it's like a whole nother world. There's like empty space. There's like land <laughs> that's for rent. <laughs> these were photos taken by Eugene de Salinac. Yeah. And he was a photographer for the New York Department of Bridges, Plants, and Structures. What a, what a great department. Mm-hmm. He did nothing, as far as I could tell, with the police force at all. There was no crime scenes. There was one like bus accident that I kind of think he was just walking by and saw it. There was no reason for him to really shoot it. Mm-hmm. But that said, these photos are, they're eight by 10 glass plate photos of old New York, and they are amazing. Mm-hmm. They really are. Every single one of them is perfect. <laughs> It is. It's incredible. It's They're calming, and you can see all these small details from the signs in the windows or the people that were moving too fast. So you have a couple blurry or like a, a, horse, car- a horse carriage underneath a train track, <laughs> you know, just so many things to see, so many things to look at. They are just stunning. There's a photo of under the Brooklyn Bridge mm-hmm. uh, along Park Row, and there's it's I, I guess probably what would be rush hour for 1910. <laughs> there was a lot of people out, a lot of men in hats and spats. And Oh, that's and uh, page 52, right? That is, yeah. Okay. What I like most about his work in general is he is so good at capturing morning light. I think a lot of these were taken in morning rush hour. Mm-hmm. And the light coming in between the skyscrapers, it looks... Like there's another dimension behind, like almost like a stage, like a like a backdrop. Oh yeah, there's like a kind of like a mist or fog. Um, so it, there's diffuse light, and you can still see that there's like 
a building back there, but it's kind of diffused from like the just the mist. And you can even see that it's cold because the windows up on the bridge where people are walking from, it looks like one building to another, look fogged up as well. I mean, it yeah. is just stunning. This is like a work of art. The The way the light is shining through uh, the buildings right here and kind of coming out into where the like people are walking. I mean, incredible. The, the book is... No, it's it's mostly murder scenes. Mm-hmm. But uh, okay, so let's go to the one on one fifty four. Yeah, this one is really fun. I like this one a lot. This was taken January twenty second, nineteen thirteen, and this was a silver, uh, actually a gelatin silver print, and he had a cyanotype. And I want to say in two thousand eighteen, a bunch of his cyanotypes were auctioned off. Yeah, I think was he using cyanotype as like a, a way to contact print? I'm assuming. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, this this one, you know, it has the printed glass doors with the watchmaker diamonds or the cafe and just the beautiful signs. It's there's so much fun to see. And then there's this kid sitting in some sort of I'm assuming 1913 big wheel. Yeah, it kind of looks like an old go kart, like the T yeah. go karts. It's kind of amazing. He's still so he was sitting there like, what the hell is this guy doing? Yeah, he was eyeballing the photographer because there's a woman on the stairs next to him who is a blur. Yeah. this These have nothing to do with murder. No. <laughs> so if we're talking, you know, about these photos have nothing to do with murder. And it's really nice to just kind of avoid that and, and, and lead, lead you into it a little bit softer. It kind of gives you context of what the city looked like at the time. And I think it kind of puts you in the era. Yeah, it puts you in the mood of New York City, mm-hmm. where it, it is a little grimy it's a little grungy but it's it's very new york you look at these pictures and you don't think any other city no this is definitely new york yeah and which which really adds a lot of context to the crime scene photos (laughs) now crime scene photos are 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 generally real quick pictures you know you want to get in there get the pictures taken and so the the forensic team can come in there and examine the room or whatever Mm mm-hmm these, however, it was it was an era of glass plates. And so these were shot on six and a quarter by eight and a quarter glass plates, which is really cool. It's a great format. It it almost it's it's very similar to four by five. It's a little bit bigger, obviously, but the ratio is just a tiny bit wider than four mm-hmm. by five. So we know at least four of the photographers, correct? We do. Uh, we don't know who they are other than their names. <laughs> we have Clement Christensen, John Golden, Arthur W. DeVoe. And some guy who just put his name as Tobin, who I assume is also the author of The Spirit Guide. I think so. Can you tell a difference between their styles? No. And that's really kind of cool. And I think that's owed very much to Bertillion. Yes, I think so too. When we got the book, we were really wondering why. Like, why did they shoot these murder scenes so beautifully? Mm -hmm. Even the cover is such a beautiful photo. Yes. Just a beautiful photo of a man of a hallway, looking down the hallway, and there's stairs to the left. But right in the center of the frame, there's a man lying there on the on the floor, dead, blood mm-hmm. on his shirt. His right leg caught behind him as he fell. His his left leg extended. Mm-hmm. It's a gruesome, horrible shot that is one of the most beautiful photos of a person I've ever seen. Yes. And it, it manages to be factual and beautiful all at the same time. When we got the book, we didn't understand why. And the book doesn't really explain why. It just sort of offers it as here it is. 
Yes. But then we started looking into the history of crime scene photos, which we just discussed. And we just discovered that, oh, this Bertillion guy who we talked about, you know, the inventor of mugshots, talked about him before. It was his style to do mm-hmm. that. And so I'm thinking this was just how, at least how New York did it, because these four different photographers and plus however many more anonymous photographers shot this way. Well, the first thing I noticed was that the shot on the cover mm-hmm. is at a lower perspective, something it I is. very much like to shoot. <laughs> it kind of seems like a little bit more respectful to the body. It, it's not just a body with you pointing your camera down and taking a picture of a body. This is a scene, 100%. You not only see the person in the frame, but you kind of see the environment. And I think that's one of the major differences. This book shows you such wide angle, you know, that, again, that format, it shows a lot. So there's three different categories of the crime scene photos. We have the standard room shots that we were just talking about, you know, the interiors, you know, the shot low, generally very wide angle. You also have street crime. There's a a few street photos in here that I find really interesting. And we also have a, a lot of examples of God's eye view shots. The one I wanted to talk about on page 175, for those following along, is of Marion, Ms. Marion Hart, a, uh, a 29-year-old who was murdered with an axe. I guess if you look closely enough at the photo, you can you can tell she was murdered by an axe. I can't. Um, well, look at look at her look at her head. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I thought that was like maybe like a comb or something. It is not. Hmm. But it's her. She's slumped over her. I guess her kitchen table, and it's a, a very shanty. It's a shanty. It's actually on Shanty Row in New York. She was potentially cooking or sitting opposite her stove, and she is now slumped over uh, the table. It's not an incredibly wide shot. I mean, it was a very small house, mm-hmm. but there's, there's, you see things in the shot that you wouldn't normally see if you were just taking a quick snapshot of a murder victim. Mm-hmm. You do see her stove. You do see the implements hanging above it, uh, the washcloth and the boards on the wall, and maybe the, the window, looks like it was, maybe the window boarded up. It's a gruesome little scene I don't know. There's just something about it really, really kind of called to me, I guess. I kind of like that. Well, there's a story here, too. You have you have some of the information about what exactly happened to her. Yeah. In this book, you'll have a room shot with its accompanying God's eye view shot. And I think those are really interesting. Well, I was going to say, I don't know if you, on 177, still the lady that was um, killed by an axe, that God's eye picture is actually really interesting. You could see the photographer holding, I think, one of the legs because you could only see two of the legs in the shot. And I think that's like interesting. A lot of people probably wouldn't like that you could see the tripod legs, but I think it's really fascinating. There's an interior shot on page 203. Mm -hmm. It's a living room slash kitchen interior and a homicide victim seated on the table. The camera was probably placed on the table to take the shot. Looks like it. But you can see a few things here. Mm-hmm. You can see, well, first, the victim is seated, seated across from you. Mm-hmm. And you can see a, a little bit of blood coming out of the left, or I guess the right side of his face. He's, mm-hmm. His head is back. And you can't really make out his, his, his face at all. You can see his nostrils. The angle, you can see that there is a hole in the window. Uh, on the table is looks like cards? A, a pack of cigarettes or a pack of cards. Maybe one of each. And a fabulous, fabulous hat. There's a little bit of emulsion damage here and there. Mm-hmm. But that's rare for these photos, for these, for the ones picked. There's almost, very, there's very, very little damage on any of these. Mm-hmm. 
And while most of our exterior shots and our street shots are done by Salinac or DeSalinac, this next one is a street scene of a, of a murder victim from 1917. She's lying on her back. Uh, it looks like under a bridge, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, along, a, along a set of trolley tracks with a, uh, a car on the street uh, off on the left. Most of it is negative space. Most of it is sky and an empty ground. Yeah, it doesn't look like inner city. <laughs> um, it is 134th Street and Willow Ave in the Bronx. So it is now inner city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then it was it was very much uh, interurban. Yeah, it's like em- it's so empty. And a lot of these are even the interior shots. There's so there's such an emptiness where you're capturing the entire room. It's it's really a wonderful thing, which is a weird thing to say about photos of dead people. Well, so on the the page next to it, it shows a different angle of the body, and it you can see like you know one of her heels is off, and this her you can see her stocking. When you get a chance to see the regular camera shot. And then the God's eye view of the camera shot. The God's eye view shots are always, they're a little more gruesome. They're a little more foreign. You're not usually looking above a person from two meters. It's a little more unsettling. Yes, but it's the perspective is not a perspective that you would think to see. So it almost makes it look not real. Like in our brains, we're still kind of like processing like, okay, this is a dead body, but also like, there's no way that I'm like floating, (laughs) looking at it like this. Also with this one, he used, the photographer used natural light Mm -hmm. for the, um, the picture on a right, with a regular camera Mm -hmm. and then used a flash of some kind for the God's eye view camera picture. Mm -hmm. I like 168 a lot. I'm looking at that one. Yeah. So double homicide uh, with the blanket and it's just a God's eye view. The guy doesn't look dead. He looks like he could be sleeping. You can tell by the woman that they are not sleeping. And then of course the tripod legs are on their bed and you can see all three, all three of them. It just doesn't seem very disrespectful. It just seems like a documentation of like these two people were murdered. And here is a picture of the scene so we can use it for whatever we need to use it for when we find who did it. (laughs) And it's such a weird, like she seems dressed for bed. Mm -hmm. She has a blanket on and she looks like she's in some sort of night clothes. Mm -hmm. He is in regular street clothes. Mm Mm-hmm. Including his, his, he's not wearing his hat, but his hat is next to him, his straw his straw hat. Maybe he just got home from work. Pictures like this, without context, they, they, they tend to raise a lot more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. But overall, I, don't, I hate saying like, oh, it's such a beautiful book. I hate saying that. It's a beautifully put together book and the photos themselves are incredibly beautiful. But it is murder victims. It is not, however... Death scenes. The book, Death Scenes. Yeah, let's let's get into that one. Yeah, I guess. So this we is have the first to. one that came in the mail, and I think it really threw you off right away because we were like thinking that we were gonna have some sort of segment, and <laughs> yeah, we were gonna got, do like we a whole history of crime scene photos, and mm-hmm. and we were gonna discuss. Oh, this from this from L.A. This is interesting. This could be really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I got the book. And you and warned me because I hadn't gotten it yet. It fucked me up. And okay, so essentially death scenes, a homicide detective scrapbook. And 
It's photos taken from a scrapbook kept by homicide detective Jack Huddleston of L.A. Mm -hmm. yes. back in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, so this was, again, not supposed to be seen by normal people. It was bought in an estate sale by a bookstore. So it was in Jack Huddleston's widow because he had passed earlier. She had a bunch of books and this was just something that was in the attic. So it was given to Nick Bogus. He worked at the bookstore and they knew that, you know, he's kind of into some weird shit. So they were like, hey, you would like this. Well, the, the photos in the scrapbook are from the, the 30s and 40s. This transaction happened in the 80s. And th so through a bunch of the 80s, the scrapbook was on this Nick guy's coffee table for years and it got really tattered and he wanted to preserve it. So he was a visual artist and he made a video called death scenes, right? I think it was just stills of these photos, which was narrated, of, of course, by Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of, of Satan. Yes, and a police photographer in San Francisco. He was, which is kind of a weird, like, well, that's, I guess, appropriate in two different ways. So <laughs> yeah. this original scrapbook, the one that Huddleston put together himself, it was huge. It was 18 inches by 24 inches. It was six inches thick. It used, you know, regular photos, you know. And the photos that he did were, were seemed sort of randomly placed. But he, most of these photos were collected. He, uh, it's speculated that he maybe probably pulled them from the darkroom trash. You know, there were cast-offs that he, he, I don't know if he was known for collecting these. Not much is known about this guy. We don't really even know like what cases he worked, but they were collected over two decades. And on his scrapbook, he himself wrote an introduction. While these pictures weren't meant to be seen by the public, I'm not sure Jack was okay with that. Mm -hmm. So he writes... The purpose of this collection of homicide pictures is to show the work of the peace officer and his problems. It will give you an idea of what they have to contend with while performing their duties in protecting the lives and property. After viewing this work, it will undoubtedly bring about a better understanding between the law enforcement officer and the public which he serves. It is also incumbent upon you, as a citizen and a taxpayer, in the community in which you reside, to extend to your law enforcement agency the fullest cooperation in assisting in its solving the problems that come before it. As you will see, most of these crimes are solved in the guilty prosecuted, which proves that, and he underlines this, crime does not pay. So that, and also it kind of gives you a glimpse, and I think they even play on that, like, hey, everybody says this was like such a golden time, but really there was really bad shit happening. <laughs> yeah, and all of this bad shit was, was collected by, by Huddleston. Mm -hmm. Well, the scrapbook was arranged very uh, sporadically, I guess. Maybe it made sense to Huddleston. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But the book is not arranged that way. I was hoping that it would maybe be a facsimile of the scrapbook, and it's not. Mm -hmm. It starts with a picture of Huddleston in his uniform, mm -hmm. and then it yeah. moves on to things like Siamese cats and shrunken heads and oddities of the time, like and big, big fucking quotes here, hermaphrodite, male and female. Mm -hmm. And then Bill Barber and Ray Hall, queer. And then oddities like uh, elephantitis and just a very, very morbidly obese person. It doesn't 
throw it all at you right away, but you're getting the point. Like, these are the first couple pages, and I'm already kind of like, whoa, this is intense. Yeah. Um, and the first thing that you see, as far as a difference, is the roll film and the way that these were shot compared to the the New York book. These are much more close-up. These are very much documentation picture of strange things. <laughs> yeah, they really are. I mean, you go from these oddities to um, children with hydrophobia, suffering with rabies, mm-hmm. um, and then older people, and then... Suicide. Uh, well, Lockjaw. I think Lockjaw is the star oh, of that picture. Yeah, yeah, it does yeah. the attempted suicide. Yeah. And then it goes into like some knife fights and, and then some, some mug shots. Mm-hmm. The farther you go in the book, the more gruesome it gets. Any horrible thing that can be done to the human body is represented here in some way, shape, or form. Yes. Uh, if you wondered what a child looked like after being exploded by dynamite, that's here. Yeah. Okay. This is not... I was I was literally... I was very fucked up by this book when I first... And it's black and white pictures from the 40s. Yeah. He like kind of scared me. He's like, I don't know. Because I hadn't gotten it yet, so I wasn't sure. I, I really was uh, unsure if I should say, like, hey, you really, really should see this. Yeah. Looking at it now, I remember like it really, it really, really bothered me when I first saw it. But now mm-hmm. it, it really doesn't bother me at all. I'm very desensitized to it now. And that, that pisses me off. Yeah. That this book desensitized itself to me. So um, let's talk about some of the pictures. Let's, Maybe yeah. not some of the, like, of course, we're not going to talk about any of the children. In There's it. a lot of child death in this book. Yeah, unfortunately. And, and some that are like right down the street from me. So it's it's very Yeah. I mean let's let's not sucks. so there. So um, let's start with the f- one that we actually both wanted. The, the the photo is captioned overturn auto with body and head decapitated. And so there are four pictures making up the, these two pages. First mm-hmm. is of the body. It's a small a small snapshot of the body. Mm-hmm. And the second is showing image. Image is underlined for some reason of head in the neck. And what yes. it what it is, is just uh, is the severed neck. Yes. And then the picture that takes in the whole scene that has a flipped over car on the left, the body somewhat in shadow uh, next Outside to the car, the car on the edge of the road, and then the head on the road maybe 15 feet, 20 feet away. The next page, page 63, is just the head. It looks like he could be buried in the sand at the beach. Yes. Very peaceful. His mm-hmm. eyes are closed. He's resting upright, like they would be buried in the sand. I think if we're looking for beauty in any of the photos, it might be this one. This might be the. This might be it. Well, let's look at one that you wanted to look at. Uh, it right. was on page ninety-two, and I'm lo- opening up to the spread of ninety-two, ninety-three, and what we have. Um, and one of the things that bothered me, uh, apart from the, the children's children murders, uh, were all of the. Um, the sexual violence murders. Yes, that's why I picked this one. You you talk about this. I'm not going to talk about this. Okay, so I picked this. Uh, her name was Anne McKnight, and she was killed by her husband. And it looks like she's outside of her bungalow. He did a lot of bad things to her body, let's just say that. And the picture is of her body kind of in a distance, kind of with her legs open. And you can kind of see that she has no like underwear on. And I see a lot of that in this book. Like they took pictures of exactly what the scene looked like. Seems like the New York book, 
There was a few opportunities where they could pull a skirt down or kind of cover up, and they it seemed like they did that. Um, this one just there's no respect to the body. They're literally using it as documentation for the crime itself. And I understand that that's important and that you need to document what's happening here. Uh, but it's just hard to see as a woman. A lot of people, I'm going to say this real quick. <laughs> okay. A lot of people uh, make fun of women who like watch scary shows about murder and crime and things like that. Like a true crime podcast type of Exactly. Yeah, of course. And I, I understand why women do it. I really do. It's, I think it's kind of our own way of preparing ourselves or realizing what kind of situations women have gotten themselves into, how they got into them and how they didn't get out or how you would get out. It's just almost like studying. You know, guys make fun of women for like listening to the gnarliest things, but it's like, I think maybe if they step back for a second and realize that we feel like we walk around as as meat, I don't know if men feel like that. I mean, I, I think I've called you before. Like, I feel like if I'm on the phone, then I'm less likely to be attacked because I'm talking to somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm your, uh, yeah, if you're feeling a little uncomfortable in a store call, that's that's me. Yep. Going back to the, uh, the the true crime podcast listeners, we're not saying that, hey, you listen to true crime podcasts, you're going to love this book full of mutilated bodies. We are not saying that. No. I think those are two very different things. With okay. the true crime podcast, you're trying to solve a mystery, a murder, and mm -hmm. you're hoping for justice. A lot of them are about justice. Yes. This book is not really about that. Now, this the, the uh, photo you picked of Anne McKnight there is a story there and there is a follow through. The, the person who did it was caught and he was hanged, but most of them don't have that, that closure. You're left with no story, no context mm -hmm. and just mutilation. Yes, but there are some Bertillion type photos and those are the mugshots that are in here as well. Yeah, Bertillion was the inventor of the mugshot. These would not, these would not exist without mm -hmm. Bertillion. I love looking at mugshots. <laughs> I'm well, sorry, but I love it. I love seeing them. And I picked a fun one because I felt like this is kind of gnarly. Um, so I picked one <laughs> that I wanted to talk about. Okay. It's a mugshot of a woman. And underneath it, it says lesbian. And then debauchery is what she's charged for. Do you think this is a mugshot? I don't think this is a mugshot. It almost looks like a, a regular portrait. She's not facing the camera. If you go to page 50, you'll see another one. And it's just lesbian. That's it. Yeah. That's her crime. She's yeah. a lesbian. Yeah, the crimes are a, a lot of the same crimes that we have today. Indecent exposure, murder, mm -hmm. uh, drunk auto hit and run, shoplifting. <laughs> but you also have things like badger game. Yeah, I had to ask you, like, is this like with actual badgers? Like, what is that? Yeah, it is a, is a game that badgers mostly play. No, mm -hmm. it's, um, badger game is uh, like, a, like, a, like a gambling of some kind. But then there's like mental case. Safe blower, a lot of safe blowers in here. We don't have a lot yeah. of those now though, do we? I know, <laughs> it's kind of, I kind of like that, like safe blower. Like that's such a crazy thing to 
I don't know. It was weird. Well, you got to uh, do something with all of that uh, that uh, munitions expertise that you got in World War One. <laughs> and the pimp, too. Look at this kid. On the next page, 53. How old yeah. is that kid? I'd say he's probably 16, yeah. Yeah, what the? Yeah. F- pimp, pimp, pimp and concealed carry. I, I don't and look at us. We're focusing all on these on the pictures that are very mild. The, the I mean, obviously the the mug shots are incredibly mild. The book is not mild. I don't know how to explain this enough. It's I don't I don't really want to get into it. It's not a book I want in my house. It's a fucked up book. You know, I mean, there's there is dismemberment. There's there's knife wounds. Um, there's a lot of autopsy photos. There was, there's pictures of a woman who was sawed in half and, and shipped to somebody in a suitcase. Yeah, there was also the human skin they found at the dump. Yeah. Like it was yeah, just is. human skin. There was attempted resurrection by a cult. Oh, yeah. A young woman died and they tried to resurrect her. People are flayed in this. And there's, a, and there's also, there's a, one's that, one that bothered me a lot were the suicide uh, victims. I think the reason, for, if you'd want to look at the murder in the city book, I think it, it's a beautiful book. There's a respect to the to what they were doing. The death scenes book, I don't think there was a respect. I think it was very factual. I don't think they were disrespecting the bodies. I don't think there was anything like that. But I think there was just a, I don't want to say carelessness, but like they had, they had already put a wall up between themselves and what they were viewing. And it was just a photo. Mm-hmm. And like we said before, it was roll film as opposed to glass plate. It was mm-hmm. a snapshot as opposed to like, as some may say, making a photo. There is that. And then also there's some racism in it, the way that they photograph some of the black people. Also kind of making fun a little bit of suicides. It's hard. It's hard to look at. He prepared me, but honestly, I kind of already knew it was going to be like this. And for some reason, it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers him for some okay. reason. Maybe it's because you live in LA. <laughs> I see this all the time. <laughs> so do we, I guess cutting to the chase, we don't, do we recommend either of these books? Um, I would say Murder in the City, definitely. Yeah, I would say so too. The Death Scenes one, it's probably going to be <laughs> somewhere put away. I'm not going to be that cool, shocking person with the death scenes book on my coffee table or anything like that. And to me, I think that's what this, that, that's why this book was published. I it was published so. in 96. And I think it was like the beginning of like the Marilyn Manson shock thing. And I think it was catering to those. Probably. What I see in this book are a lot of people that probably had really, really hard lives. And some of the suicides were probably they thought was the best choice for them at the time. And some of the murders, probably because they grew up around it or they saw that or they were on drugs or whatever, you know? Um, I think that we're capable of pretty fucked up shit when we are messed up in the head. Yeah, we absolutely are. And uh, I'm okay with not seeing it, (laughs) or at least not seeing it again. Yeah. So no, I will not be recommending death scenes. I will be recommending murder in the city though. I think there is a lot of good there. So moving on from that to to maybe something we don't recommend to something we do always recommend, are, uh, and that is zines. We always recommend zines, and we always try to review some zines to give you a little uh, heads up on what's out there. We've got two zines today. What is yours, Vanya? 
I have future condos and essays regarding suicide. So, yeah, sorry guys, we're still we're still in deep over here. Um, this is by Jesse Rinyu. Um, he's at J R I N Y U on Instagram. It's a square color zine, and it's very reminiscent of Eric's second conspiracy of cartographer. Uh, zine it has it has a little bit of fun in it yeah there, uh, yeah this is in color as well though right it is well yeah, there's color uh there's color and black and white okay. and he makes sure to write down a title for each mm-hmm. of the pictures in very tiny writing with what he used so some of these are four by five some of these are 35 uh and then the film that he used as well so i absolutely love and enjoy that and i wish i could be better about that <laughs> So there's uh, three or four stories in the book, and it includes some amazing, beautiful cityscapes. Um, Eric hasn't gotten his copy yet because I'm putting it in the mail at some point. But the pictures are amazing. Oh, yeah. It's very honest in a way that I really, really appreciate. I think he kind of took it a, a step further than I probably have the balls to do as far as talking about mental health. He talks about some stories of just like things that happen in the city and like how a bad situation can happen so quickly. He did save somebody, <laughs> a woman, <laughs> from being mugged. So that's kind of cool. And then he almost got mugged as well. Lot- lots of little stories of just like what happened. And he always ends it with live another day. I appreciate him putting himself out there li- the way that he did. I think it's very brave and I <sighs> I respect it. In- yeah more ways than I can explain. Yeah, I think it's a zine that y- y'all need to buy here and you need to get your hands on it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's important. I think it's an important part of his life and possibly like getting better, getting to the next step as far as like taking care of a, his mental health. So Jesse, it's it's really good. I, I feel so lucky that you sent me and Eric a copy of it. It's wonderful. Also, <laughs> he made a really cool uh, Kodak ad in it, and I am actually I asked him if he could print me a picture of it. <laughs> it's really great. So it's a picture that he took, and it it's like an auto service building, and then on top it says, "Nothing captures urban decay like premium Kodak film." <laughs> and then on the bottom it's crisp colors, broken signs, the the crumbling infrastructure. Capture it all on Kodak's line of professional emulsion. Kodak, you might as well. <laughs> Love it. Oh, so clever. Very well done. Thank you so much. Uh, if you guys would like a copy, he has a wonderful website you guys have to check out. His work is great. The zines will be there. Uh, he said he was going to order, I think, some more too. So yeah, just definitely check it out. Okay, and the zine that I have is Toy Golf by Garen Kiesel. I have that one too. You do? I was like kind of bummed because he, okay. So Eric was like, I want to do this one. I'm like, damn it. I knew he was going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) So it's an entire perfect bound book of photos that that were taken at miniature golf courses from a variety of golf courses, but they all have that, that very similar aesthetic. This is, it's harmless nostalgia, but it's also not just a book to look back on a simpler time. Mini golf courses, they weren't simple, you know? It's miniature golf. There's like weird shit everywhere. You gotta hit your ball around it. As a kid, it, was, it wasn't a simple time. It was frustration. It was cheating. It was sobbing. 
it was exhausted parents. Mm-hmm. But this book really isn't about the good old days. And even though we probably didn't know what they were, this is both of our, our zines are, are weirdly connected to the uh, murder books. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> As a kid, I don't remember new many, many golf places. They were all old. They were all falling apart. The windmills were broken. The water features were still. And nobody won the free game at the end. Like, nobody. It was impossible. And so the many, many golf courses of my youth were in New Jersey and Maryland and Pennsylvania. Garens are perfectly Floridian, mm-hmm. even though they're actually in California. But there's that weird <laughs> sliver of California that still exists somewhere around Daytona and the Everglades, somewhere between there. And that's where these photos were taken. The tones, they're, they're soft. They're like these pastel tones, almost like, like Portra, but he used, well, he used Loma 100 and 400 shot through Holgas. There is something different about these shots. Yes, they were shot with Holgas, but holy shit, like the colors are ridiculous. There's something magical. Like what, why, what's going on? <laughs> well, he used Loma 100 and Loma 400, which normally wouldn't give you these kind of colors, but he also uses his secret weapon. He, he developed these with my DIY ECN2 kit. Oh, oh. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a zine of somebody else's that was that, that used photos developed with the kit. I yeah. Could be wrong, uh, well, when we were going through it, it was a surprise at the end. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know he bought my kit, you know, but I didn't realize that, like, I'm looking at it right now. And mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. And yeah. actually, the whole zine is really fun. Mm, your kid all grown up. I knew you could do it, you little whippersnapper. So get yourself a copy of this one. And to do so, you have to message him at grain underscore or underscore die on Instagram and well worth it. Absolutely worth it. It's so wonderful. It's been sitting actually. Uh, um, usually when I get zines from you guys, I set them out on my coffee table. So anytime I'm sitting there, I can lift, I can pull them up and kind of look at them with fresh eyes because obviously I want to give you guys, you know, a, a good review and and kind of, take my time looking at it. So I have a huge stack right now. It's great. I have a couple in the works for the next couple episodes. So if I haven't done your zine yet, don't worry. I'm getting there. If you think I forgot, send me a message. I'm okay with that. All Through a Lens is brought to you by our lovely Patreon subscribers. Patreon helps us pay for hosting, books, our newspaper.com account, for research, audio equipment, and much, much more. We would like to thank our subscribers for their support. We couldn't do it without you. If you like bonus episodes, full-length interviews, and some extra nonsense along the way, you can become a Patreon subscriber. We've got three levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. And a hearty welcome to our newest Patreon, Sonia. Thank you so much. Thank you. Head on over to patreon.com slash allthroughlens for more info. Well, Vanya... Yes. I guess we're kind of at an end here after this, this weird, weird episode. I know. I'm so sorry, you guys. <laughs> yeah, this is a weird one. But maybe the next week, our, our post-Thanksgiving uh, week, won't be so weird. I don't know. What are your plans from here on out for the next couple of weeks? 
Well, I'm heading up to the cabin for a couple days, and I have a cyanotype kit, and I just collected a bunch of new like handkerchiefs and doilies and things, so I'm going to hopefully, if I get a sunny day, do some cyanotypes. Really excited about that. Oh, cool. Um, And then just trying to develop I have like random rolls of things I keep finding. So kind of just getting through that and then organizing negatives and not being outside at stores because I hate the holidays. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Oh, that's, that's all right. Bah, humbug. <laughs> How about you? Between the, the time of a recording and the time you'll, you folks are hearing this, I'll have taken another trip east. But after that, I, I don't really know. I don't have any hard plans. Uh, maybe another zine I'll put together. I have to put together that the next uh, volume of Expired, and I'll probably be writing some of that this, this uh, coming weekend. I'm planning on maybe staying in. I do want to go out maybe once a month, but yeah, mostly staying in and just kind of enjoying being, enjoying the, the warmer parts of being a photographer in winter. <laughs> So on the next episode of Dev Party coming to you in a week, we, I think, will be exploring the developer FX1. We have talked about it before and we have put it off and put it off and put it off. But I think that's what we're doing. Is that okay with you? Sounds good to me. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say? Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com, and we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram and speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag allthroughalenspodcast to be featured. You can also find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find your podcast. You found the one you're listening to now. Just go back to there. There's more. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so much for listening to this, this weird little episode. Thank you. We love you. And see you next week at Dev Party. Yeah, Fania, do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. Cut it out! Marley! Get the dog. Bodie's being a weirdo.